Well, good morning again. It's uh, nice to be together. Thank you for uh, tuning in and joining us today. Before we get to our passage today, I want to make uh, just a couple of announcements, uh, sort of family business announcements. And um, one of them is that uh, in light of the governor's uh, message this week, um, Parkside will continue to meet virtually until further notice. And so we uh, don't know when things will change and when we will be able to be all together again and what that might look like. Uh, but for the time being, we're going to continue uh, meeting the way we are right now. And so I uh, wanted to make sure that you knew that. Um, also, in connection with that, um, I had been um, holding off on going back to where we were in our series in the book of Romans. I was holding off, hoping, hoping that uh, this next Sunday would be our first time back together and we could continue in Romans at that point um, from Romans chapter 7. And um, it, I'm, uh, we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to wait until we're all back together again. Instead, we will be uh, meeting virtually next week, but we will be in Romans chapter 7 next week and we will just continue on with the series. It uh, didn't, didn't seem right to me to continue to alter uh, what we've been preaching on, what we need to study, what we need to learn because of external forces. We're going to continue on in, uh, in the book of Romans chapter 7 uh, beginning next week. And so um, that's kind of the where, where things are going. And um, nobody knows what this is going to look like in two weeks or four weeks or anything else. Um, but next week we will meet like this one more time. But we will be in Romans chapter 7 picking up where we left off uh, last time. And uh, so uh, today, however, we will be in Romans, but not continuing on the same series. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 3, if you would, and we're going to be looking at uh, really what is kind of the heart of this book, and that is chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And uh, I looked at my notes to see how often I've preached on this, and it has been a lot. <laughs> Even going through our series, we, uh, we, we spent two solid weeks looking at this right here. And in our time today, I thought it was particularly significant as we've been marching through the past several years of our lessons and, and trying to um, kind of call to mind what the Lord taught us from different series from years past and whatnot that might be applicable in our situation now. And I think for the book of Romans, this passage right here is always applicable and is something for us to focus on. So if you would take your Bible, we're going to read from Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we have every reason 
to worship you and to praise your name. And this morning, we worship you that you indeed are just and holy and upright and merciful and loving. We worship you, our God. We bow down to you and give you honor. And we praise you for what you have done for us, that you are just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. We praise you for this justification that we have because of Christ. We praise you for this redemption that is ours in Christ. We praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. And Father, as we work through this passage once again and we think about the the content and the teaching, the message of the book of Romans up to this point, I pray that we would give you all the more glory, that we would praise you all the more, that we would call to mind what you have done for us in Christ, that we would call to mind this mercy and grace that you have shown us in him, that we would lift your name up. And that as we do so, you would work in our hearts. That you would turn our eyes and our hearts more and more to you. To worship you. To live lives of worship to you. So Father, we ask that you would be at work in us even now. As we have your word open in front of us. As we have your spirit living within us. Pray that you would speak to us, that you would do your work through the proclaimed word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a question for you as we begin. What do you do when it's quiet? What do you do when it's quiet? I know some people have to have music playing if it, get, if it goes quiet. If they're driving in a vehicle or sitting at home quietly, they have to have music. And others insist on maybe having the TV on, at least in the background, at least as white noise, as as company, as a distraction. Or maybe other people like to have talk radio going or maybe podcasts, and they always have them going. There's always something to keep them going as uh, it gets quiet. And... When you're left alone and it's quiet like that, one of the things perhaps that is scary to us is that we're alone with our thoughts. When it's just quiet and there is no distraction and there's no one else and there's no music and there's no anything else, it's just us and our thoughts. And maybe that's, maybe that's what's been happening during this time of quarantine. Some people have Pretty much everybody has extra time. I know there are some people who are working longer hours and whatnot, but, uh, but I know that, uh, you know, our evening programs that we might have, Bible studies and whatnot, those are not meeting. And our children's programs and things, uh, sports and whatnot, the things that would normally keep you busy in the evening or on the weekends, those things are, are uh, not going on. And for some people, they, they can't even go to work. So they really are quarantined all the time. And And maybe one of the results of this has been that you have gotten a lot more time alone with your thoughts. 
And uh, maybe that's a, a good thing for you. Maybe that's an exciting thing for you. Or maybe that's a frightening thing for you. But as we have that question in our mind and we come to the conclusion of our tour of previous sermon series where we've looked at different books that we've preached through in the last number of years to see what God uh, might have taught us from that book that we need to know now, that we need to call to mind now. When we come to the book of Romans, I think the greatest thing perhaps for us to call to mind from the book of Romans, the greatest thing that we could occupy our thoughts and our minds with is the gospel. And this passage right here focuses on the gospel and explains the gospel and gives the heart of the gospel in a way that you won't find in many other places. And so it's my desire as we work through this passage today, as we, as we talk about the book of Romans and even the things that we've learned, it's my desire that God would capture our hearts and our imaginations and our minds so that that time alone we have with our thoughts would be time alone of us thinking about the gospel and glorifying God for this gospel and rejoicing in and finding peace and joy and comfort in the gospel. And maybe that's something that uh, you've been missing. Maybe that's something that we've been missing that this time of solitude might call us back to. And so it's my desire that our tour through the gospel this morning would have great benefit, great benefit on us. And so we begin before we even get to our passage the first thing that we need to call to mind and remember about Paul's argument in the book of Romans is man's universal unrighteousness. And of course, we've called this the bad news and, and we, have, uh, we spent months on this and it can be tough to review, but it's very important for us to remember man's universal unrighteousness. In the end of chapter 1, the second half of chapter 1, Paul is making very clear about that all Gentiles are unrighteous. And he's arguing from verses 18 and following about the downfall of man and how he's just spiraled into worse and worse depravity. And, uh, and it ends up in, in gross sin. And the, the heart of it all is that uh, in verse 22, claiming to be wise, this is of chapter 1, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And as you continue reading on in that passage, it, it gets pretty dark. It spirals downward more and more where you begin to see not just the root, but now the fruit of what is being born in really the world around us. You can read through the list of those things and you can look in the news or you can look out your window and you can see those things going on that, that Gentiles are unrighteous, that they have followed their flesh. They have, they have given over the knowledge of God and instead they have preferred to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And it has resulted in this kind of life. And, and so, of course, Paul is writing to a mixed church in Rome. There are some Jews and some Gentiles there and, and maybe there's a little bit of uh, squabbling between them or um, or ter territorialism or something like that that's going on. And so he starts off and argues for the obvious that Gentiles are unrighteous. Every Jew knew that. Every Jew knew that. This isn't anything new. But he moves on in chapter 2 and all the way up through the first few verses of chapter 3 and begins to argue that not only are the Gentiles unrighteous, but likewise the Jews are unrighteous. 
Yes, they've been given the law. Yes, they've been given every advantage. But the result has still been sin even amongst the Jews. And so he argues very clearly in chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3 that the fact that they have the law has not made them righteous. In fact, their having the law actually has exposed their own sinfulness, that they at the very root are no different than the Gentiles who were unrighteous without the law, and the Jews have been unrighteous with the law. And so he argues uh, some, some important arguments in there about what does circumcision do? Does it produce righteousness? Does, are, are, are Jews righteous because they are circumcised, because they've followed in that step of obedience? Well, he says, no. He says, in fact, if you are disobedient to the law, your circumcision is treated as uncircumcision. It becomes uncircumcision. And so he spends chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 arguing that actually the Jews also are unrighteous. And that might have been news to them. And here Paul, a Jewish man, a faithful Jewish man, making such an argument might have been a little difficult to hear, but he's writing to this mixed church and he starts off by saying, you Gentiles are unrighteous. And that was no shock to the Jews, but Jews, you also are unrighteous. That may or may not have been a shock, but his point is, thirdly, that all are corrupt by nature. Jew and Gentile alike are corrupted in their very nature by virtue of being human, by virtue of who they are deep down. And so we read a summary of that in chapter 3 and and verse 9, where he says this. He says, all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. He concludes, he wraps up his argument from all the way from chapter 1 and cha- through chapter 2 and 3 by saying that here's the point. Here's the point. All are wrapped up under sin. All are enslaved to sin. All are captive to sin. All have been ruined by sin. Jew and Gentile alike that in fact all are corrupt by nature. And that's how he begins his book. There was introductory stuff and, and statements made early on that are very important about the gospel and about Paul's own ministry and about his love for them and God's love for them, etc. But as soon as he gets into the meat of the argument, he starts with what is the bad news of man's universal unrighteousness. And so what's the application for us today? What, what do we take away from that? None of us likes to hear bad news, uh, but what do we take away from this bad news? Well, I think it's this. We need to stop giving ourselves credit for any part of our salvation. We need to recognize the extent of our depravity and corruption and realize that God saves sinners despite what they have done, not because of anything that they have done. So that's the first part, man's universal unrighteousness, but Secondly, he he argues, before we even get to our passage this morning, he argues, secondly, for God's righteousness by law. God's righteousness to be obtained by law. And that uh, reminds us of a, a, a phrase from the Old Testament, do this and live. In Leviticus 18, uh, we read that, that, that God's law is essentially him telling us what to do. And if we do that, we will live. We read in chapter 2 and verse 13 of Romans 
Paul's restatement of that same concept when he says the doers of the law will be justified. The doers of the law will be justified. Do this and live. Well, this is the nature of God's righteousness by law. Paul is making the argument here that God is holy, that he is completely set apart from sin, set apart from any kind of defilement, that God is all the way holy. And since God is holy, any right relationship with God must be done in a manner of holiness, must be done in accordance with holiness. And so God puts into writing in the law what his character and nature is like. He puts into writing in the law what holiness looks like. And so thus anyone who would be justified, anyone who would have a right relationship with God, anyone who would be considered just and righteous enough to enter God's presence must keep God's law because he's spelled it out what it means. And not only must he keep the law, he must keep the law perfectly in order to be holy and thus have relationship with God. Well, that that makes sense. God is our creator. He gets to establish the terms upon which we relate. And since he is holy, he says that we also are to be holy as he is. Well, that may make sense. But if you think about it for just a minute, you'll realize that that's actually bad news for us. That's, That's frightening. It's actually terrifying to us. It's prohibitive to us. The doers of the law will be justified. Do this and live. That's bad news to us. And the reason is because none is righteous. None is righteous. You see, right in the middle of chapter 3 there, verses 10 and following down through 18, Paul is gathering a number of Old Testament passages to talk about the nature of man, to talk about what man is actually like. It's not, it's not Paul making this up. He's drawing it from the Old Testament. And, and we read in verses 10 through 12, and the, the list goes on, but we read in verses 10 through 12, remember quoting from the Old Testament, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And he's quoting from the Psalms there, and later on he's going to quote from Isaiah, and he's going to quote from Proverbs, and he's quoting from various places in the Old Testament that everyone who knew the Old Testament should have known. And what Paul is saying is, first of all, I didn't make this up. I'm not coming up with a new idea. This is biblical teaching. And second of all, none is righteous. None is righteous. And so, with that being the case, remember the law says, do this and live. The the doers of the law will be justified. But then he says, none is righteous. And so if you work through that math, you will see what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And this is like the culmination of this bad news. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. 
You see, the law would justify us if, if we would only keep it. If we would only do it perfectly, the result would be eternal life. It would be blessing for us. But the weak link in that equation is that we don't and we can't keep that law because of our own depravity, because of our own sin. And so the law, which would yield all of these wonderful blessings, these wonderful things in our lives, if we were to keep it absolutely, it actually winds up doing something very different. And so we see, thirdly, that the law exposes sin. So we go back to Paul's words in chapter 3 and verse 20. And he began, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes not righteousness, but knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, when, when God's holy standard, when His standard of perfection, when His law is brought to bear upon us, when it is applied to us, it ends up revealing that we don't measure up. It reveals our own sin. It reveals our depravity, and, and it reveals that sin and that depravity probably in ways we never would have noticed had God's law not been brought to bear on our lives. And so the law exposes sin. And remember, this is all of us. All people are wrapped up under this sin. This isn't just, you know, a, a select few really bad guys. This is all of us. None is righteous, he says. And so before we move on to the good news, which I'm excited to get to, we need to think about a point of application here for just a moment. We need to lay the foundation in our minds that we have absolutely no claim on God that says that he should save us. We are rebels at heart. He would be right and just and good and glorious to give us the just punishment that we deserve, which is hell. He would be right even to give us no opportunity for salvation. We have no claim on Him. Well, that's the sobering news. And after all of that sobering news, that's dark truth about us, we finally come to our passage and we come to the very good news that God's righteousness is by a gift. It's not by law. First of all, it is apart from law. We finally come to our passage. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now, when he said that his law was the standard of righteousness, and now he says that righteousness, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, it's not as if God just did away with the law. It's not as if he took the law and put it in a museum somewhere for us to uh, think about occasionally when we really want to. He didn't just set it aside, brush it aside, do away with it. No, the law must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. That's his character and nature revealed, and it must be fulfilled. But, but we've already read, we've already heard in our passage today uh, and, and in the Romans leading up to this point that we can't fulfill that law. We won't fulfill that law. So what then? Well, of course, this is, where, this is where Jesus comes into the picture, and this is where we see the genius of the gospel at work. 
I said earlier on that because of God's character, because of his nature, because of his holiness, any right relationship that we are to have with him has to be on the standard, on the basis of holiness. Only a holy being can have right relationship with God who is the holy being. And since God has revealed what holiness is, he has revealed his character and his nature in the law, then that means any being that is going to be in his presence must keep the law. The law still has to be kept. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5 that he had come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And later in our same epistle here in in Romans, we read in chapter 8, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember that weak link in the law? Us? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The law must be kept. And so Jesus perfectly kept the whole law, perfectly fulfilled the whole law. Jesus did in his own life, what we could not do. But what about the penalty? Because you and I have not kept that law. You and I have been in disobedience to that law. What about that penalty that we deserve? God's broken law, the, the, the penalty must be paid for that. Well, that, that is exactly the penalty that Jesus takes on himself on the cross, where he, he endures the wrath of God where he bears the guilt of the sin of other people on himself. And so not only does he walk in obedience, not only does he fulfill the law actively as in what he does, but he even fulfills the penalty of the law that's incurred by people like you and me who have broken the law. And so this is what Paul refers to today in, in, uh, in this passage that we're looking at now. He refers to it as the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. In Christ, the wrath of God towards us and towards our sin is propitiated. Jesus has borne it. It has been poured out on him entirely, and he has borne it for us. And thus, all who are in Christ are redeemed. And so we see this righteousness of God that that is ours apart from law. And secondly, we see that this redemption, this righteousness of God is ours through faith. Ours through faith. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's ours. That righteousness can be ours. It is made ours purely by faith. It is applied to us by faith. And this is important for us to think about because often we want to establish our own righteousness in one way or another. We want to do what is right. We want to keep certain rules. We have a concept in our mind that we can establish our own righteousness that will somehow please God. But what we need to remember, what we need to keep in mind is that when we think there is something we can do, whatever that is in your mind, whatever it is in your mind that you think 
uh, will please God, could make God uh, look at you as an acceptable person, if there's something that you could do, then what you've done is two things. You have lowered God's standard and you have raised your own capacity. You have overinflated your capacity and you have underestimated God's standard. If you think that there's something that you could do, whatever that thing might be. But the Bible assures us and is, is very clear on the fact that this redemption, this propitiation, this righteousness of God is available to us, not because of anything that we do, not because of anything that we could do. It's available to us purely because of faith. By faith, he gives this to us. Faith is that instrument by which God gives us the righteousness that is his. And so the result, as we work our way through, and I know we're not going systematically through this. Like I said, we've done that a couple of times already. But something I want to call our attention to here at the end is the just justifier. I'll continue reading on in in the second half of verse 22 there. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I've called this message today the just justifier. And that's where we're going to end here. We, we have to understand what's going on in this last verse here. This was all accomplished, this, the righteousness of Christ who came and obeyed uh, the law perfectly and yet gave himself as a propitiation for our sin. And that's for us to receive by faith. That happened verse 26, to show his righteousness at the present time so that, so that, that's a purpose statement. And so I don't, I don't want us to miss that. Keep your finger right there on so that. And I want you to think about what a purpose clause, a purpose statement is. Anytime you're reading scripture and you run across a purpose statement, you need to pay special attention because Paying, uh, understanding what God's purpose in doing a particular thing helps us understand that thing that draws our attention to what God was seeking to accomplish in doing that. And so here we have a so that. Here we have a purpose statement. This is God's purpose, God's intended outcome, the reason he was doing, the purpose he was seeking to accomplish in the gospel. So first of all, there's a purpose clause. And that purpose is broken up into two parts. And I want us to keep our thoughts on both of those parts this morning. So that he might be just. This is the first purpose. What God is doing in his actions, in salvation, first of all, is maintaining and uplifting his own holiness, his own righteousness. He is remaining just through this whole process. So why did he send Jesus? In part, and the first purpose is so that he would remain just. You see, justice, righteousness, 
is an essential part of who God is. And if he hypothetically could lose that justice or that righteousness, he would cease to be God. He would no longer be God. And so we see a a first purpose here that God is accomplishing in salvation is that he is remaining just and upright. And so what that means is that his righteous standard has to be upheld. And when that standard is not upheld and it is broken, then the righteous penalty must be paid. And so we see Jesus come onto the scene and meet both of those requirements perfectly, perfectly. And so we see the first purpose in the gospel is that God is retaining, he is upholding, he is protecting his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. So going back to 26, the purpose, so that he might be just, that's the first purpose, and second purpose, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see how he's wrapped those two together? The first purpose is for him to be just, and the second purpose is to justify sinners. The second purpose of God in sending his son is to redeem sinners so that sinners would be justified and sinners would have peace with God. Now, that may seem like a pretty obvious purpose, a pretty obvious observation, and you're thinking, get on to the deeper stuff. But really, it's a very powerful reminder of something that we want to keep in our minds this morning, and that is God's love for us. He had a dual purpose in the gospel. He's going to retain his character and nature. He's going to retain his holiness and righteousness while also justifying sinners. You and me, we who do not deserve any grace or mercy or blessing from God. Of all of the courses of action that God could have taken when Adam first fell into sin, he chose this one. He could have just destroyed Adam and Eve right there in the garden. Immediately after they sinned, he could have reprimanded them and destroyed them right there. And that would be the end of that. And he would have been just and right and good to have done so. He also could have let Adam and Eve have children and you have the human race, but all of them be condemned to hell. All of them be condemned to eternal punishment. He would have been right and good and just to have done that as well, because after all, they are rebels against him. They are, they're guilty of treason against their creator, against the God of all things. So he would have been just and right and good to have just let the human race propagate and condemn every one to hell. They, they're his creation, and they've rebelled against him who is the creator. One thing he could not do, since he is a just God, is simply ignore our rebellion. He couldn't just sweep it under the rug. He couldn't just look the other way. If if you have uh, a judge who lets the innocent uh, suffer and lets the guilty go free, that's not a just judge. That's a corrupt and unjust judge. If he just overlooks the crimes of the guilty... And particularly if you're, if you're on the side of the one who's been offended, who's been sinned against, who's had a crime committed against you, you're well aware that if, if someone is, is 
brought into court and it's clear that they're guilty and the judge just says, ah, don't worry about it. And you're the offended party? You see very clearly that that judge is not a just or right or upright judge. God can't simply let the guilty go free without the requirements of the law being met. But what what God does and what we see in this passage and what is developed in the book of Romans, God does the, the, the most loving thing possible. This is the clearest expression of free grace that ever could have been. God decreed that justice and the law would be completely fulfilled, both in its requirements of obedience, which Jesus did in keeping the law in his life, and in its requirement of payment, of penalty, of judgment, of condemnation as a result of breaking it. And Jesus takes that very condemnation. He takes that very payment, that very punishment upon himself on the cross where he bears the wrath of God for sin poured out on Jesus, who is the innocent one. The Father's gracious love for us is behind this whole gift of free grace. His gracious purpose behind Christ's incarnation as one of us was to remain just himself and to justify all those who would have faith in Jesus. And so we see the revelation of the love of the Father in what Jesus has accomplished. God's love is on display here. Not only his righteousness, but we see his love on display So we come to our final point of application. Look to Christ if you don't know him. And you will find him to be a perfect savior. You will find him to be the one and the only one in whom you can have peace with God. Look to Christ and you will see God's gracious and unmerited love for you. So if you don't know him, look to Christ Believe in Him, trust in Him, and you will find Him to be a perfect Savior for you. And if you do know Christ, look to Him. And you will see the profoundly gracious love of God manifested in Christ for you. And let's remember Paul's words from Romans chapter 8 where he said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? To conform us to the image of his son and to keep us perfectly secure in him. And so we see today that God is the just justifier and he has demonstrated his love for us in the clearest and most powerful and most profound way that, that could have been. His love for us in Christ is amazing. So if you don't know him, look to him. And if you do know him, look to him. And mull in your mind as we have this uh, downtime, as the world is turned on its head, keep in your mind and turning over what God has done for you in Christ. Just how much he loved you that he would bring about such a costly 
and such a glorious redemption as this. Let's pray. Father, I'm astounded once again at the free gift of the righteousness of God in Christ by faith. I'm astounded at your love for me that you would do such a thing for such an undeserving rebel, a sinner against you. And yet you were willing to pay such a price so that you would be just. You wouldn't just be overlooking sin or looking the other way. You would be seeing that the law is upheld and your righteousness is upheld, that you remain just and at the same time justify me. That by faith in Christ, I stand before you with an account full of righteousness. Sins having been paid for and righteousness having been applied to my account. That that I have acceptance with you. That I have peace with you. That I've been called your child. By faith. Father, it's my prayer that as we go through this odd time, we would keep that in mind. And not only as we go through this odd time, this is, this is a foundational truth. This is something that I need to remember day in and day out. This is something that, that uh, shapes my life. The grace of God poured out for me in Christ. And the righteousness of God given to me by faith. Father, I pray that you would take these words this morning and use them for your glory, that you would draw many to yourself, that you would strengthen your own people, that we would look to you, that our hearts would be turned towards you, that our eyes would be turned towards you, that we would give you glory, that we would rejoice in the fact that we have peace with you, that you have drawn us to yourself in such a way. So, Father, we love you and we praise you this morning for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. If you would like to uh, have someone pray with you, pray for you, if you have a, a praise you need to share or a prayer request, you can call the church office here sometime in the next half hour or so. The number here is 775-423-3855, and uh, there'll be someone who uh, would love to pray with you, pray for you in that situation. Let's hear these words from Philemon. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen and amen. God bless you all. Thank you.